Two of the most used capacities, vital capacity, and we have here like in the formula, inspiratory reserve volume plus expiratory reserve volume plus tidal volume. This is supposed to be V here. And function of residual capacity, residual volume plus expiratory reserve volume. We can also measure the total minute volume, which is the amount of air that we breathe every minute. And I think we measure that also in the lab that we had on respiratory system. It's a good index. It tells us how much air we breathe every minute. And it serves as an additional um, number that we can analyze. And to better remember these uh, volumes and capacities, it's always good to see them in a graph like this because here we can understand the curve and the moments. Uh, when the curve goes up, that's inspiration. The base pattern of waves is the tidal volume because that's inhalation, exhalation, inhalation, exhalation. And the, when the curve goes down, that is during exhalation. And in that way, we see in this picture the inspiratory reserve volume. We see the expiratory reserve volume. And one thing that we said during the lab is that the ERV, expiratory reserve volume, is supposed to be less or lower than the inspiratory reserve volume. There's always more air that we can hold in inhalation than the air that we can force out. In the residual volume, remains all the way down here, and the curve ne never goes uh, below that line, because that air will stay in the lung all the time, even after death. Vital capacity is the addition of the three areas, IRV, TV, and ERV, vital capacity. So to see the formula and see the graph, you better have a better visualization of all these <coughs> volumes and capacities. We use this spirometry to classify the lung disorders in basically two types, restrictive disorder and obstructive disorder. Obstructive, the name says, obstruction refers to the airway. Best example here is asthma. Asthma is reduction in the diameter of the bronchi, bronchoconstriction, we call it. And that's an obstruction. And the spirometry will give us this pattern of obstructive disorder. Restrictive disorder, when the lung tissue is damaged, and there are two examples here, pulmonary fibrosis and emphysema, the lung tissue is destroyed, damaged, and replaced by connective tissue, and the lung is hard to expand. It restricts the volume. That's what we call a restriction or restrictive disorder. The vital capacity is, is used to measure and differentiate this. That's one of the indices. And vital capacity in restrictive is reduced. And in obstructive, vital capacity is normal. Forced expiration in restrictive is normal, but in obstructive, forced expiration is reduced. So that's how we differentiate these two types of disorders.
What is asthma? A little bit more about asthma. Asthma is a disease that is characterized by the following symptoms. Dyspnea, which means shortness of breath, and wheezing. Inflammation of the bronchi, mucus secretion, excessive mucus secretion, and constriction of the bronchioles. Those three things are the, are the main signs of asthma. And we see here in the graph, normally, this is the diameter of the bronchi, the bronchi, the small bronchioles. If there is asthma, then we see how the wall of the bronchioles are inflamed and it gets thicker and there's more mucus being produced and the consequence is that the diameter of the bronchial is reduced. And that's why the wheezing, the air going through these small spaces, small ducts, produce that sound. Now, asthma can be caused by different things. And one of the main things that cause asthma is uh, hypersensitivity or allergies. There's a type of asthma called allergic asthma. Someone is allergic to some particle, dust, or anything, there will be a reaction, and that reaction inflames the wall of the bronchioles and contributes to asthma. There is a whole immune reaction mediated by the IgE antibodies. And the treatment goes directed to increase the diameter with medications that are called bronchodilators, like albuterol. Albuterol is one of the medications that is given in inhalers, sprays, and that will open up the bronchioles and improve the symptoms. Of course, the main treatment is here to avoid the thing that is causing the allergic reaction. But some people develop this in a chronic way, and even after the allergen is not present anymore, they're still with a reaction that takes some time to recover. Emphysema is another example of lung disease. This can be understood as destruction of lung tissue. And therefore, there is a reduced area for gas exchange. So there's a problem with oxygenation of the blood here. And since the lung tissue is destroyed, the alveoli will be, the walls of the alveoli will be um, destroyed and we have big, large air sacs that sometimes they can collapse during exhalation, making things worse. Smoking is a trigger, especially in people that have some enzyme deficiency in the lungs and they develop emphysema with the time. COPD is a disease of the lung and that stands for chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. This is characterized by chronic inflammation. The airways get smaller, like in asthma, but there is also destruction of the lungs. This is a process that happens a long time. It starts with something like asthma, 
but then it progresses into this destruction of the lung. That's why at some point it is diagnosed as a bronchiolitis, like an inflammation of the bronchioles that gets chronic, but then with the time it may turn into emphysema with destruction of the lung tissue. And still it's an inflammation, it's an immune reaction, and uh, excessive mucus production. In most of the cases, it's triggered by smoking. But there has to be a predisposition. Some people are more predisposed to this, to develop COPD. And it takes years for this to develop. And of course, it can be prevented if um, smoking is avoided. And another problem that gives restrictive disorder is called pulmonary fibrosis. Pulmonary fibrosis is a reaction, an inflammatory reaction that gets chronic, and it's like having a scar. When we have a wound on the skin, it heals, but sometimes it leaves a scar, and a scar that is thick, fibrous. Something similar happens in the lungs. There may be an inflammation, chronic inflammation, and then it heals, but with excessive amount of fibrous tissue. And sometimes this is due to inhalation of very small particles of carbon, dust. Um, people that are exposed to very small particles like miners, they can be subject to this type of disorder called pulmonary fibrosis. But not everyone develops this. Again, there has to be a predisposition and an immune reaction is what gives place to this process. So all these diseases can be classified, measured, monitored with spirometry and see how bad they are affecting the lung volumes and capacities. Now let's see what is the process of gas exchange, oxygen, carbon dioxide. We measured, uh, we mentioned that Pressures, difference in pressures, pressure gradient is the main responsible for ventilation in and out. But there are more things because the oxygen and carbon dioxide are the ones, are the gases that are important for us. So first, let's start with the concept of pressures, atmospheric pressure. It is the pressure exerted by all the particles of elements in the air, in the air that we breathe. We measure this with... Uh, um, special uh, barometer here and it is about 760 millimeters of mercury. This special instrument uses this metal mercury and that's what we call 760 millimeters of mercury. That expresses the atmospheric pressure, so the pressure of all the gases, particles that are in the air that we breathe. At sea level, that's a standard. And to understand how the exchange of gases happen, we have to mention some physics laws also here. The first one is called Dalton's law. Dalton's law states that if we have a gas mixture, and that gas mixture contains different types of gases, with each gas each component of the air element will have 
its own pressure and all the pressure of all the gases in that mixture of air, air or gas will contribute to the total pressure of the mixture. And in that sense, we can define partial pressure. We know that in the air we have oxygen, we have nitrogen, we have carbon dioxide, indeterminate amounts. Well, depending on the amount of the gas, they will have its own pressure. And that's what we, hold, we call partial pressure. And it's proportional to the concentration. How much oxygen is in the air? Well, in that degree, it will contribute to the pressure. For oxygen, it's 21% concentration in the air that we breathe. So therefore, the pressure exerted by just oxygen will be 21% of the atmospheric pressure. And we know that it's 760. So we make some math here. 760 multiplied 20%, we have 159 millimeters of mercury. That is the pressure of oxygen in the air that we breathe. 21% of the atmospheric pressure. That's about the Dalton's law. And there are other gases in the air, nitrogen, which is 78%. Well, the pressure of nitrogen in the air that we breathe will be 78% of 760 millimeters of mercury. And we need to know that because what is interesting and important for us is to know what is the pressure of oxygen inside the alveola. We breathe the air, and the air comes in, the oxygen is the one that we're going to use. So in this way, we can add the pressures of nitrogen, oxygen, carbon dioxide, and even water vapor present in the air. And we get this 760. The formula on top, it says dry because it's not including the water vapor. But a real is to consider the wet pressure because there's always water vapor in the, in the environment. And that changes the humidity level. When we uh, see the broadcast of weather, and they always tell us there's this percent of humidity, that means how much water vapor is in the air. And that can affect in some way the pressure of oxygen because it's a, the pressure of each individual gas that contributes to the atmospheric pressure. So that's the Dalton's law. First, partial pressure of oxygen. And here we have a table showing the pressures of these gases, partial pressures, inspired air. This is the atmospheric pressure at the air from the room, let's say. Water content is variable. It depends on the degree of humidity of the environment. Oxygen, 159, we obtained that number from the math. Nitrogen, 601. Carbon dioxide, look at how small this number is, 0.003. And that makes a total of 760. Now, this different picture here for alveolar air, that's the pressure of the air once it's inside the lungs, inside the alveolar. There are differences because the alveolar air contains 40 in carbon dioxide. 
So all this carbon dioxide has been unloaded from the blood to the lungs. Oxygen is less, it's 105, it's not like the air here. But, look at these differences. There's a gradient here, 159 against 105. This oxygen will diffuse from the expired the air to the alveolar air. And here, the alveolar air will go in this direction, carbon dioxide. So inside the alveoli, the pressure will be a little bit different because the mixture will be different. There's more water inside, water vapor. And that's important to remember for the exchange. Another thing that is shown in this table is how the oxygen pressure changes depending on the altitude. If we are at sea level, the atmospheric pressure is 760. There is 21% of oxygen in the air, so the pressure will be 21% of 760. But if we go to a city which is 8,000 feet above sea level, the atmospheric pressure will be 564. Now, oxygen will always be 21%. But 21% of 564 is 118. And that's how we have problems for breathing and oxygenation because the pressure of oxygen will be much lower if we go to high altitude places. The amount of oxygen, the concentration of oxygen in the air is the same here on 8,000 feet. The contents is the same. The pressure is different. And that's what it makes a difference and uh, makes us uh, or gives us a hard time for getting oxygen. So the pressure is what is important for the gas exchange. And here in this picture we can see those pressures in different places and understand how they can diffuse in which direction. Here we have the alveolus in the lung and a blood vessel going around. The blood vessel brings 46 in pressure of carbon dioxide. There is 40 pressure of carbon dioxide inside the alveolus, so the carbon dioxide will diffuse out to the alveolus. Oxygen contents in the blood that gets to the lungs of the alveolus is 40 but the oxygen in the alveoli is 100 rounded in, because it was 105, 100, 105, and the oxygen will diffuse in this direction toward the blood. And you can see how the color of this blood will change from blue to red, meaning that it's getting oxygenated. As long as the blood circulates around the alveolus, the blood gets oxygenated. And that's the main point about the lung, to get oxygen to the blood and get rid of the carbon dioxide. But here we mention the Henry's law. Henry's law is another physics law that states how well a gas dissolves in a fluid because the oxygen and the carbon dioxide here are in the air part of the air mixture, but here these gases are dissolved in the blood. So 
how well oxygen and carbon dioxide dissolve in the blood, that relies on this law called Henry's law. So every gas has a different solubility, how well it gets dissolved in a fluid like the blood. And as we say here, <coughs> the amount of gas that dissolves in liquid depends on three things. Solubility of the gas, which every single gas has a different index, how well it dissolves in, the, in fluids. Second, the temperature. And third, the partial pressure of gases, which is the most important factor. So we can conclude this summarizing that why the oxygen gets from the alveolus to the blood? Well, pressure gradient. Higher the pressure, better the oxygen will diffuse to the blood. That determines how well the oxygen will dissolve in the fluid. It's a very important thing. Now, the oxygen, again, diffuses from the alveolus to the blood, and it gets dissolved in the plasma, in the blood, in the fluid part. That's what we measure when we get this sample of uh, uh, blood and we measure oxygen pressure and carbon dioxide. We are measuring the oxygen that is dissolved in the plasma. Now, the other step that we should mention is how the oxygen reaches the cells of the body. Well, from being dissolved in the plasma of the blood, the oxygen will be captured by the red blood cells and it will be bound to the hemoglobin. When we measure pressure of oxygen in the blood, we're not measuring the, the oxygen bound to the hemoglobin. We are measuring the oxygen dissolved in the plasma. And that's what it explains how the oxygen diffuses from the alveolus to the blood. We always measure this in critical patients like emergency room, patients with pneumonia, asthma, emphysema. We get a sample of blood and measure the oxygen pressure. And if it's a high, that means that the oxygen is diffusing well through the lungs. Or sometimes in emphysema, there's a low capacity, low diffusion capacity, low oxygenation. And we can measure that um, with a blood sample. So that explains how the alveoli, as we see here in this graph, resembling like a bunch of grapes, every single violus is surrounded by a rich capillary network. And you can see how from one side it's blue and then turns red. That's the direction that the blood's flowing. Blue meaning it gets poor in oxygen and red it turns rich in oxygen as long as it gets the oxygen from the alveolus and then leaves the lungs red, oxygenated going back to the heart. Now this concept of circulation, every single violence in the lungs are very well vascularized. 
and we can measure the blood flow, how much blood circulates around the lungs, and how much blood will get oxygenated, of course. 5.5 liters per minute. That's the same of the cardiac output. It makes sense. All the blood has to be oxygenated in order to return to the blood every minute and provide oxygen for the rest of the tissues. Now, you remember from cardiovascular, the circulation of blood, the blood from the heart is pumped by the left ventricle and it goes aorta, circulates all over the body and returns to the heart, to the right side, to the right atrium. And the blood circulates because also a difference in the pressures, pressures of blood. And we mentioned that again here, systemic circulation, pressure difference of 100, that was drives the blood circulating in the, in the blood vessels. And the difference between left atrium and left pulmonary artery and, and pulmonary artery is only 10. Those are the entrance and exit of the lungs. Just 10 millimeters of mercury, which is a very low, low pressure, vascular resistance is very low, so the blood can circulate properly. And slow enough so it can get oxygenated. Well, this relationship between circulation and oxygenation is called ventilation perfusion, or VP. And it can be understood like this, different numbers. Blood flow in liters per minute. There's more blood flow in the base of the lung than in the apex of the lung. And ventilation is more in the base than in the apex. Now what is important is the ratio, ventilation and perfusion, which we get here. 3.4 against 0.63. We can understand this in this way. If we are standing, the blood has to go all around our lungs to get oxygenated. But there is something called gravity. And the gravity will try to pull the blood all the way to the bottom part. So in some way, the blood has a hard time to reach the apex of the lung. That's what you see there. Blood flow at the base 1.29 and the apex 0 0.07. So the blood is like flooding the bases of the lungs, but not reaching completely in the same degree to the apex. This will change if you lay down horizontal. Lay on bed, and now the orientation is different, and the blood will go again to the lower part, but the lungs are now rotated. You're laying down. Well, these numbers must be optimal all the time so we can get oxygen and the blood pick up that oxygen. If someone has, has heart disease, the blood going from the lungs to the heart is having a different speed, a different flow. And that is the reason why people with heart disease, they find hard to lay down horizontal or sleep with no pillows. They need pillows to sleep because of the VP ratio is different. It's not normal. The blood will fl flood some areas of the lungs and the ventilation is not properly unless they sit up or stand up and they can oxygenate much better.
So this is called ventilation perfusion ratio and tells you that the bases of the lungs always have more blood than the apex of the heart. Now this pressure of gases, it determines, as I said, oxygenation. There's a problem with deep sea divers where if they go too deep under the water, well, the pressures will change. The pressures will change. And there's a special type of training and adjustment for this type of uh, sport, especially if they go very deep. That if they go in that way, when they come out, it has to be a process, a slow process. It cannot be something that in and out all of a sudden because the pressures in the blood will change and the oxygen will be under different pressure in, even in the blood. And what happens sometimes is what we call nitrogen narcosis because we breathe air, we breathe oxygen, but we breathe also nitrogen is in the air. And the diffusion happens because of the different pressure. When the pressure is different under the water, actually higher, well, these gases will, may have a problem for diffusion. But the most dangerous thing is decompression because the air that we're breathing, the nitrogen also gets into the blood and gets dissolved in a very small amount. We don't use it. It won't make us any damage normally. But what happens is, <clears throat> if there's a decompression, the nitrogen dissolving the plasma all of a sudden turns into gas before it goes to the alveolus, to the air, and it starts bubbling in the blood. And that may be very serious, it can happen, people may have stroke, obstruction of small blood vessels, that's a whole a uh, group of symptoms called decompression sickness. And everything is explained by the different pressures that the gases may have because they're going too deep under the water. The hollow respiration is regulated. <coughs> First of all, this is completely unconscious usually. You cannot, you're not aware of your breathing process you breathe in, breathe out, inhale, exhale, <clears throat> thanks to the respiratory muscles. These respiratory muscles are controlled voluntarily and involuntarily. Voluntary, cerebral cortex, you can hold your breath, you can do that, only when we get this conscious. But usually, we're not conscious, it's automatic, it's involuntary, and the orders come from the brainstem, medulla oblongata, and pons. In the brainstem, there are neurons called respiratory centers. There are motor neurons. They control the diaphragm. Phrenic nerve is the one that brings the axons. And they go all the way from the brain 
from the brainstem through the phrenic nerve and going through the thoracolumbar region of the spinal cord. But still, they are controlled and regulated by descending neurons from the cortex. There are some in the medulla oblongata called the rhythmicity center. Two groups of neurons called dorsal group and ventral group. The dorsal group are inspiratory neurons. And the ventral group contain inspiratory and expiratory neurons. They inhibit lower motor neurons. They control all this movement of inhalation and exhalation. And that is what it gives the rhythm to the breathing or respiration. Inhalation, exhalation, inhalation followed by exhalation. From the medulla oblongata. And in the pons, there are two centers, the apneustic center and pneumotaxic. The apneustic promotes inspiration and the pneumotaxic inhibits inspiration. So the pons, we can say it controls the medulla and both working together determine medulla sends an order, inspiration. But then the pons will say stop inspiration and then the medulla again promotes expiration. So both centers, pons and medulla work coordinated. And all these axons come down through the phrenic nerve, C3, C5, C6 from the spinal cord. We can see it in a graph here, these two in the pons and this other in the medulla, the rhythmicity area. And now they together send axons down through the phrenic nerve to innervate the diaphragm. Now these centers are connected to the brain cortex and that's how we can consciously regulate breathing, change the pattern, hold our breath, and so. How these medulla and pons work, they work automatically, but the stimulus that they make them work are chemoreceptors. Receptors, neurons that will detect the concentration of hydrogens, pH, carbon dioxide, and oxygen. There are central chemoreceptors in the medulla, but there are also peripheral chemoreceptors in the aorta and the carotid arteries. Well, these chemoreceptors will actually control how the medulla and pons will work oxygenated. We see sometimes how these uh, loops work in people with intoxication or people with diabetes that get um, diabetic coma or ketoacidosis, excessive acidosis. They come to the emergency unconscious but breathing with a specific pattern like hyperventilation. 
I mean, they are not controlling the breath. It's a reaction. It's chemoreceptors detecting pH too low and changing the respiratory pattern, so um, the pH will be regulated. Um, intoxications or people with diabetes, yeah. So the peripheral chemoreceptors are two located in the aorta and the carotid arteries, groups of cells called aortic and carotid bodies. And they send the feedback to the medulla. And the medulla will initiate inspiration, exhalation, control the rhythm, depending on the concentration of pH, carbon dioxide, and oxygen. And here we have these loops, medulla and pons, working coordinated, but it's still connected to the cerebral cortex. We are able to control this to a certain degree. And I say certain degree because we all have the experience of holding our breath under the water and there's a point at which we have to come out because we feel the urge to breathe. Why is that? Because all the time that we're under the water, we're not breathing, we're not getting oxygen, carbon dioxide is getting higher in our blood, and those are being detected by the chemoreceptors. And the chemoreceptors are sending signals, are sending signals to the medulla and say, breathe, 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 time to breathe. Chemoreceptors don't know if we, are under, uh, if we are under the water. We know and we can hold our breath and keep holding and keep holding, but there's a point at which you cannot hold it anymore. And the medulla will override your conscious control and you make a respiratory movement under the water, inspiratory movement under the water, and you breathe water and you drown. So the chemoreceptors are really important for uh, keeping the respiration. But we can override it with the cerebral cortex to some degree. This is a relationship of respiration and oxygenation with the acid-base band. If the ventilation is not normal, carbon dioxide is not being eliminated, and it starts rising in the blood. And that makes the pH coming down getting acidosis. But if we hyperventilate, we are eliminating carbon dioxide and the carbon dioxide will fall, the levels will fall in the blood and the pH will go up. We call that hypo, hypocapnia. Oxygen levels is different because the oxygen will get transported by the hemoglobin. So the hemoglobin control very well how much oxygen is getting to the tissues unless there is a dramatic uh, uh, decrease in oxygenation that will affect the hemoglobin transport. So ventilation is mainly controlled by the levels of carbon dioxide in the blood. The level of carbon dioxide in the blood is the one that determines that you have to breathe after holding your breath. Is the main trigger.
So what's a hemoglobin? Hemoglobin is a protein that is inside the red blood cells. And that's the main responsible of transport of oxygen. So the oxygen goes from the alveolus to the blood, to the plasma, gets dissolved in the plasma. And from the plasma, it gets captured by the hemoglobin. So from the plasma, it has to go inside the red blood cell. And the hemoglobin will transport the oxygen to everywhere. Now, why the hemoglobin? Because the hemoglobin, each molecule of hemoglobin has four sites for four molecules of oxygen. So it facilitates the transport of oxygen and maximizes the transport of oxygen to the tissues of the body. Here we have a comparison. If we get oxygen from this tank and get it dissolved in the plasma, we get this amount of molecules. We measure the pressure of oxygen here is 100, because remember, we measure the oxygen dissolved in the plasma. But if we get oxygen to this other container on the other side that has hemoglobin, you see how each molecule of hemoglobin is getting four molecules of oxygen. The pressure is still 100. Why? Because the pressure measures only the oxygen that is dissolved in the plasma. And there, there's the same molecules of oxygen dissolved in the plasma. But you see here many, many other molecules of oxygen. They have been captured by hemoglobin. They're inside the red blood cell. But the contents, the oxygen content, it's very different. In the first container, you have 0.3 milliliters, milliliters of oxygen. Compare the compartment with hemoglobin contains 20 milliliters of oxygen. That is the reason of hemoglobin. It maximi maximizes the transport of oxygen. The oxygen that is captured and transported to the tissues and cells of the body. That's a molecule of hemoglobin. It contains two uh, alpha and two beta chains for fractions of four different units, all of them together, and with four sides for molecules, for four molecules of oxygen. How much hemoglobin are in each red blood cell? Billion molecules of uh, oxygen can be transported by each red blood cell because of the presence of hemoglobin. The only function of the red blood cell, remember we said that, is have hemoglobin and capture oxygen and transport it to uh, the tissues. Hemoglobin, when it gets oxygen, it changes its chemical configuration. Deoxyhemoglobin oxyhemoglobin or reduced hemoglobin is the hemoglobin molecule without oxygen. Now, every molecule of hemoglobin contains a molecule of iron, and if oxygen is not bound, 
it changes from the ferric form to the ferrous form. There are other types of hemoglobin, like the methemoglobin, when the oxygen or the iron is oxidized, but different reasons, sometimes some drugs can cause this. And so this hemoglobin cannot bind oxygen. That may be a problem. Some medications may affect the state of hemoglobin and give problems for oxygenation. Carboxyhemoglobin is that hemoglobin that binds to carbon monoxide. As you know, carbon monoxide is poisonous. And the reason why it's poisonous, it's so poisonous, is because it binds the hemoglobin. We call that carboxyhemoglobin. And it happens that carbon monoxide binds in a very strong way to the hemoglobin, even stronger than oxygen. It competes with oxygen. If someone breathes carbon monoxide, percentage of it will bind to the hemoglobin and cause a poison and intoxication and death of that person. If the person is saved, is rescued on time, there's a special treatment to release all the carbon monoxide from the hemoglobin because that person will have hemoglobin with carbon monoxide for many days. Now we can measure this, there are special instruments to measure this, colorimeters, spectrophotometers, that depending on the chemical configuration can tell you this is how much oxyhemoglobin, deoxyhemoglobin, or carboxyhemoglobin we have in the blood. Another concept related with hemoglobin is the concept of saturation of hemoglobin. It means how much hemoglobin contains oxygen, expressing percentage out of the total amount of hemoglobin that we have. And it's a good index of oxygenation. As you see here, this instrument called pulse oximeter, showing 97% of saturation of oxygen. That refers to saturation of hemoglobin. That means that 97% of the hemoglobin you have contains oxygen, which is very good. Now, if that percentage goes down to 80, 85, then you are in trouble. You're not oxygenating well. It is very simple to measure. This is a very small instrument that it is attached to the finger, and it reads from the capillary beds of your fingernails and uh, it tells you how much oxygen your hemoglobin has. This is very useful uh, during surgeries, during procedures, critical patients, they can tell you if the patient is getting oxygenated properly. If we measure hemoglobin, we are measuring in an indirect way how well, how much oxygen is getting to the tissues. And if we have low levels of hemoglobin, then we define anemia. If we have higher levels of hemoglobin, that's called polycythemia. That usually correlates with the number of red blood cells, meaning if there's more hemoglobin, there has to be more red blood cells. 
or if the hemoglobin is low, that's because there's less number of red blood cells. In any case, the red blood cells and hemoglobin production, it is controlled or regulated by this hormone called EPO, erythropoietin, made by the kidneys. And the loop is, if we get low oxygen in the blood, we need more oxygen, therefore we need to have more red blood cells, more hemoglobin. And the EPO stimulates the bone marrow to make more red blood cells and hemoglobin. Now that oxygen from the hemoglobin has to be unloaded to the tissues. First, it has to be loaded with the lungs and then unloaded when it gets, when the red blood cells get around cells and tissues. And we see this reaction, deoxyhemoglobin plus oxygen, we have oxyhemoglobin. And it's a bidirectional. The direction depends where the oxygen is and how well the oxygen gets attached to the hemoglobin. So what happens is, when the blood gets through the lungs, the hemoglobin captures oxygen. And when it gets to the tissues, the hemoglobin unloads that oxygen to the cells and tissues. And that is controlled by the pressures again. If we have a pressure of oxygen of 100 in the systemic arteries, that usually determines that 97% of the hemoglobin contains oxygen, given this amount of oxygen in the blood. But in the veins, where the oxygen pressure is 40, the amount of oxygen bound to hemoglobin is 75%. And that means this amount of oxygen, the absolute amount. And that's what is determined by a curve. All these numbers and relationships can be plugged in into a graph. And we can have a curve that expresses this way that the hemoglobin loads and unloads. And that's called oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. And it's a curve that is a S shape, it's a sigmoidal curve. And um, I'm gonna see this curve here. How we understand <coughs> this. Here the x-axis we have the pressure of oxygen in the blood and here the percentage of, ox of, of oxygen bound to hemoglobin. So in the arteries when the pressure of oxygen is 100 the amount of hemoglobin that is saturated with oxygen is 97%. But here in the veins pressure of oxygen is 40. So at this point, the amount of oxygen saturated in the hemoglobin is 75%. So always the amount of oxygen that is unloaded to the tissues will be here, this difference. Just that. It never goes lower than this. If you go lower than this, then you're in serious trouble. Your tissues are getting a lot of trouble for giving the oxygen. And all this, this is a very narrow branch here means of protection for the, for the tissues. 
guarantee that the oxygen gets there. It is not much variation in general. Now there are some things that affect the way the oxygen binds the hemoglobin. We call that affinity for hemoglobin, uh, hemoglobin for oxygen. What are those things? Two main things here, pH and the temperature. If the pH is decreased, the affinity will be decreased. And we see the curve shifting to the right, meaning that if this happens, the oxygen will be unloaded in more amounts. If we see increase in the temperature, the affinity is decreased, means that the oxygen is unloaded. And we see the curve shifting to the right. Oxygen is unloaded. This is what happens during the exercise when we have an infection. And it makes sense. Imagine having an infection of being invaded by microorganisms. Your tissues need more oxygen to fight. So therefore, the affinity of, our, of hemoglobin for oxygen will decrease. So the oxygen will be unloaded in more amounts. So as we said, this mechanism ensures that muscles get more oxygen when we exercise, when we have fever, when we have a challenge, uh, the affinity decreases. And we see the same here with specific examples, 7.40, pH of 7.40 is what is normal. Now we have the pH decrease, 7.20. You see this curve shifted to the right, that's what we mean. The curve changes determining how much oxygen is unloaded and loaded. And this is a temperature effect. Oxygen is unloaded, the curve shifts to the right when we have an increased temperature. What is 2,3-DPG? That stands for 2,3-diphosphoglyceric acid. This is something that the red blood cells have inside. It's an enzyme. Uh, it's, a, it's an intermediate compound of the glycolysis. So this changes depending on the metabolism of the red blood cell. And it's a way, and it's a way that the red blood cells can change the affinity for hemoglobin. This happens when someone has anemia or when we are high altitude places. That will determine unloading of oxygen. So the red blood cells have mechanisms to change this by this 2,3-DPG for better, more unloading of oxygen to the tissues. Any question? <coughs> 